Hello and welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is John Keeley, and this is the podcast extension of ROI Show 497. Our guest today is Dr. Sharon Strokia, professor of history at Emory University, who will be talking to us about part of being a domestic goddess in the 17th century Europe was making medicine. Uh, the history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Jay Swords. And Jay, since you've always wanted to be a domestic goddess in the 17th century, uh, you can start us off. <laughs> Outstanding. <laughs> so, Sharon, we, we talked in the radio portion of the show about these recipes, these medicinal recipes, but it feels to me like we need to give some examples. Can you give me sort of a very common kind of medicine recipe that would have been put together? And then I'm interested in a follow-up. You know, what, you know, can you pull out as, as one that seemed a little different somehow um, and, a, and a little harder, a little weirder for the modern conception? You wrote your thesis on a hard and weird yeah, one. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, the example was I... I um, looked at ancient Egyptian medicine and, and for gastrointestinal illnesses, the, the base ingredient was crocodile dung, dried and powdered. And, and added to milk or something, you know, and we think that that's, you know, God, that's so horrible, but it did exactly what you wanted it to do. It killed off all the bacteria in your gut and allowed you to sort of get better. So the, the second part of that question, Ed, is there something like that which seems to be more unusual that would be harder for a modern audience to understand? You know, I think, as was said during the radio portion of the show, you know, we do tend to focus a little bit on the weird, <laughs> the weird ingredients, um, because they seem so strange to us and, you know, they pique our interest. But, you know, there are also just some really kind of standard remedies that we would recognize if we went and bought cough drops today. Uh, so things like, so, so some of the, the remedies that we would see scattered throughout, you know, every recipe book would be What's good for cough, right? Qatar, if somebody's coughing, somebody's got a sore throat, you know, that's something that you can take care of at home. And it's pretty much what we would say is self-limiting, right? I mean, people generally tend to recover from that, but they're really suffering during in, in the meantime, and you want to make them feel better. So, you know, how do you ease the, the, the pain? Um, you know, cough drops uh, would you know, in this period be made of honey, made of some kind of uh, kind of a sweet uh, flower taste. So you would boil down some plants and flowers into a nice smelling mixture and combine that with honey. You could put it into little shapes, little lozenges and make um, cough drops that way, tablets. Or you could have it as a syrup. Um, most most of the time, that's the form it would come in. So these would again be kind of commonplace remedies that you know would it, it would uh, attend to the problems of everyday life. So you know things you'd have in your kitchen: um, honey, uh, maybe a couple of spices, throw it in, maybe some cinnamon, um, definitely some flowers from your garden. Um, some, you know, some nice smelling thing, roses, violets, those are two very common medicinal plants. So, you know, I, I would say, you know, I'd focus on that as the kind of the common. And then to get to the, the weird, if you will, or the unusual, um, oh gosh, you know, what to, what to pick from. Um, 
things like uh, what uh, something called mumia, mummy, right? Egyptian mummy, which is actually mm-hmm. a supposedly anyway, if it's authentic, um, part of the you know desiccated mummies that were dug up in Egypt itself. Really? And that is a very expensive ingredient. You're not going to see that in too many cases. But, you know, you'll see that in aristocratic households, uh, mumia. Um, Yeah, it it has wondrous properties because the human body can cure other human bodies. And these are human bodies that have been preserved for centuries. So it's it's kind of magical, but it's also, uh, you know, there's a lot of theory behind it. Um, in terms of what it can uh, cure, in terms of ailments. Okay, Terry. <laughs> I have a lot of spices in my pantry, but that's not one of them. <laughs> I don't know. So your husband that. doesn't have to worry about yeah, it. No, that's not going to be in the chili tonight. That's for sure. Okay. okay. <laughs> that's a letdown. I would. <laughs> I would like to know a little bit more, Sharon. Um, what were the medical practices and beliefs at this time? During this time. Yeah, so in the 17th century, what um, Galenic medicine, as it's called, or herbal medicine, or humoral medicine, it's all the same thing, that reigns supreme. And Galenic medicine is a very sophisticated theory about um, health and healing that says, basically, there are things that you're born with, in, in we would call them genetic predispositions, but you have a humor, a certain humoral complexion that may be, um, you know, melancholic or sad. You may incline to, again, what we are, the modern term would be um, sadness or depression. You might be inclined to anger. You might be inclined to um, being a little bit docile. Um, so you, you're born. There are things you're born with, and those are conceived of in terms of the humoral complexions. And then there are things you can't, you can't, you know, you can control. You can't control what you're born with, right? That's inherited. But there are things that you really can control. And this is where I, I like to tell my students: the Galenic system is is kind of like Health 101, because it uh, in this system. There are six non-naturals or six things that you really can control, and they are so important for determining your health. For instance, what, what is your diet like? How much sleep do you get? How much exercise do you get? Um, what, are, what is your emotional equilibrium like? And so forth. So these non-naturals, as they're called, are ways of thinking about how we can determine our own health and be responsible for our own health, right? You can't change what you're born with, but you can begin to adapt some of those strengths and weaknesses by manipulating the non-naturals, right? The diet, exercise, sleep, emotional stability, and so forth. So, so I like to think of um, medical practices in, the, in this period as being quite sophisticated, despite the weird ingredients sometimes uh, that appear in recipes. Um, but the system overall is quite sophisticated and I, I'd say holistic. That's what I really love about it. It's holistic in the sense that it's looking at human beings and human health from the standpoint of 
an individual, but also a group. Um, human health is part of the environment. Human health is something that, you know, you are responsible for uh, as an individual, but also, you know, on a more population-based level. So uh, medical practices all revolve around the manipulation of this humoral system. Okay. Uh, back to the question that we had with the classes. Did, where, did you come across instances where, of course... I'm guessing it would definitely be at the top of the pinnacle where someone who was quite important and sick in the uh, aristocratic um, class in looking for something to try and save them, rumor or word it got out through communication that some concoction from a lower class in society had come up with an answer that appeared to work. Uh, did you ever come across with this? And was there this kind of communication where it went up and down that yeah, I really doubt that the aristocrats did a lot to help the poor folk, but um, that, you know, it, it was that, you know, that something was discovered and the aristocratic class got their hands on it and it was successful? Yeah, absolutely. No, there's a lot of that kind of, you know, searching for a cure. Right, irrespective of where it originates. So I was actually just writing about this this week. Um, there's a, a the, one of the, the Dukes of Florence, right? The, the Medici Dukes named Cosimo II is a very sickly guy. He has a lot of different ailments. He's got gout. He's got um, sciatica. You know, he's got all kinds of respiratory ailments and so on. And none of his very well-paid court physicians seem to be able to cure him but so so he you know sends out his informants and his information collect gatherers and collectors his spies and he gets word of uh, a, a, an unlearned right a, he's not illiterate but he's not trained in a university um, a guy who is from Sicily and he literally summons him up to the court in Florence and he says I, you know, I want to try your remedy because I, I don't like having all these health problems. And then there's intervention on the part of the court physicians. They don't want him to try this guy's remedy because they're really worried that he'll show him up and so forth or that, you know, something worse will happen to his health. So the physicians insist that they conduct a number of drug trials on hospital patients to see whether or not this remedy really works before they're willing to try it on the Duke. And so I've been writing about that, and the, the, um, the, uh, the healer from Sicily just has great success with his remedy on these various hospital patients. And the, the physicians say, well, no, I mean, it must have been, you know, the medications we gave them before the, the trial started that accounts for this. So they make them repeat the, the drug trial and so forth. The long and short is the physicians have to acknowledge that this remedy does really seem to have empirical proof that it works. And they've been running these tests and, you know, they can't really say they didn't do it right. So they think then that, well, maybe we can give it to the Duke. But before that happens, he dies. 
<laughs> and yeah, it's a great story. And, and this is around 1620. And so what happens then is that this Sicilian healer publishes this whole kind of big set of little pa- of pamphlets that are bound together saying, you know, if he had take if that duke had taken my remedy, he would still be alive today. So it's you know you know the, the use of print and all of this becomes a way to publicize remedies and advertise cures and so forth. So uh, you know it, it is a great example of the question you asked about you know how does this information get round? And some of it is word of mouth, and some of it is in print, and usually the combination works best. You can always find a Rasputin somewhere in history. That is not a problem. Jay, you got the last question. All right. So of of all the ailments that, that humans have been dealing with long-term, pain management is, management is probably the one that, that sits at the, at the top of the list. So what kinds of recipes existed to help manage uh, pain and I'm thinking everything from from uh, sore tooth to arthritis or? yeah to arthritis to you know bruised whatever um, what what kind of options did you have if you were in the 1600s yep yeah so the whole class of remedies an- analgesics right pain relief don't have Tylenol, don't have, oh, I guess I can't say that because it's a brand name, but they don't have, you know, over-the-counter things. But they, there are quite a lot of analgesics around um, that dull pain, topically and also to be taken internally, right? So the medicine that has the most pain-relieving effects to be taken internally is opium, right? Oh. Be- for reasons that we understand, um, you know, that it's a narcotic and so forth. So opium, you know, is one of the the remedies that circulates around Europe. Um, It's expensive. So, you know, probably your local peasant is not going to have it, but your local noblewoman would. And, you know, it's, it's a factor in, or it's an ingredient, rather, in many, many common recipes um, that, you know, you just take a little pinch of it. Right, um, but it does help relieve pain. Topically, um, various herbs um, like nettles, stinging nettles, and I'm thinking of, you know, one of the common uh, recipes we use now for arthritis, which has uh, like chili peppers, right, or capsaicin in it. You know, it causes the skin to burn a little bit or tingle, and therefore kind of takes your mind or takes your sensory uh, system off the pain. So there are, you know, kind of stinging nettles. Um, there are uh, recipes that use um, these ground-up beetles, you know, insects from Spain, Spanish beetles, that, again, have this kind of, you know, if you apply them topically, they kind of irritate at first, much like a hot and cold remedy would or icy hot would. But then, it because it tricks your nervous system into, into thinking about other things, it relieves your pain. So there's a whole bunch of different analgesics that circulate in, this, in the period. Okay. We would like to thank our noted guests for the 497th show, Dr. Sharon Strokia, professor of history at Emory University, who talked to us about a part of being a domestic goddess in the 17th century Europe was making medicines. The history bus for today's show are Terry Toppler and Jay Swords. 
ROI can be found at 9.30 p.m. Friday nights on KALA Radio or on the web at TuneIn.com. If you're looking for older programs, you'll find them at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find nearly a decade of ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all your favorite streaming platforms. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.